Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and this is my conversation with Academy Award winner for his editing work on the original Star Wars, the legendary Paul Hirsch. From working with Brian De Palma and John Hughes, to his time in the editing bay for both A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, we go through as much as we can of his storied career. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 37, Paul Hirsch. Today we are talking to Academy Award winning editor for his work on Star Wars, Paul Hirsch, um, also known for his incredible work on Carrie and Footloose, Mission Impossible, the the list goes on and on. Mr. Hirsch, thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Uh, I would love to first start, before we even talk about Star Wars, about how, how you got into to editing itself. Uh, growing up, uh, what movies inspired you, uh, and were you noticing the, the types of editing and, and camera work that were going on in those early films? My parents moved the family to Paris when I was about three years old. Um, I lived there for about four years. Uh, we moved back and forth a bit, but in the total was about four years. I came back when I was eight. And for me, going to the movies to see American movies was a way to keep uh, a link to America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember seeing movies in Paris that had a, a big impact on me. Of course, you know, you ask any seven-year-old when they come out of a movie, how'd you like it? They say, it's the best movie I ever saw. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, because they're seven, you know. <laughs> yeah. So... The movies I remember from Paris uh, in particular, one was King Solomon's Mines, had a huge uh, effect on me. And I think I was fascinated by the location uh, shooting and the uh, authentic music. There's no score in the film. It's all African drums. And uh, I, I really loved that picture. And years later, I discovered that it had been edited by Ralph Winters, and he won the Academy Award for it. So um, there's that. And then there was a picture, uh, An American in Paris, mm-hmm. with Gene Kelly and mm-hmm. Leslie Caron. And in it, Gene plays a painter. My father was a painter, and he's in love with a dancer, and my mother was a dancer. And there <laughs> I was. I was, the, I was an American in Paris. So <laughs> I think I saw that picture about 20 times. Wow, yeah. Um and as a kid, I always loved dancing, and I was encouraged by my mother to dance all the time. And mm-hmm. uh, my father played the piano, and music was really my first love. And other films, like when I got to be, you know, older, when I was a teenager and started going to movies, uh, you know, not ju- not just the weekly issue from the studios. Right. Let me back up for a second. When we came back to America, we started going to Provincetown in the summers. And in Provincetown, there were two movie theaters. And they've changed their programs every two days. Mm. So Monday night, we would go to one theater. And Tuesday night, I had a friend, Ron Roos, who's also an editor and writer and educator. And he and I were kids together. And we would go to one theater on Monday, the second theater on Tuesday. By Wednesday, there was a new program at the first theater. Mm -hmm. So we'd go back there. And then Thursday, we'd go back to the second theater and then friday was one theater saturday was the other and by sunday we were stuck because the the weekend movies played for three days 
Uh-huh. So we, we had to figure out something else to do on Sunday nights. But I spent about five summers um, there going to every movie that came through town. And I remember, what did we see that was impressive? The Vikings with Kirk Douglas mm. and um, uh, The Big House with Jack Palance, mm-hmm. uh, Blackboard Jungle, and uh, we couldn't get in to see I Am a Camera because we weren't old enough. Uh-huh. I remember seeing Diabolique, which scared us. And then later on, I was living on the Upper West Side in New York, and there was a movie theater there called the Yorktown. And it was a second-run house. And they would show the, the distribution pattern in those days with the studio pictures that open in Times Square and play there for a few weeks. And then after a while, they would move out to the neighborhoods, or the NABES, as they called them. And they had the second run in the neighborhoods, and the ticket prices were cheaper. And um, the Yorktown was then bought by, uh, I think, by a man named Dan Talbot, who called it the New Yorker. And he started uh, a revival program there and showing pictures from the 40s, 30s and 40s and 50s, as well as some foreign films. And it was at that theater and the failure that I sort of got my education in more diverse films. And... um, Finally, in summer after I graduated college, I went to Paris, and Paris introduced me to the notion of directors as auteurs. And I started to learn who Howard Hawks was and uh, Bill Wellman, Raoul Walsh, and mm-hmm. John Ford. And so uh, it was a gradual, lifetime, lifelong right. love of movies that sort of made it seem inevitable that I would wind up in the business. But uh, I can't say that it was very special. I think a lot of children grow up loving movies. Well, how did you make that jump then to to working on movies professionally? What was that step like to becoming an, an actual professional editor? When I graduated Columbia, I applied to the Columbia School of Architecture, and I was accepted. And after a couple of months there, I just thought that the work was too dry for me. And I had a friend who lived in the neighborhood who had graduated from Columbia a couple of years before me. And he was cutting a little documentary in his apartment. And I visited him, and I saw a moviola for the first time. Mm-hmm. And this was in the era before Betamax. So the only way you could see a moving image in those days, unless you were in, in the business... The only way an average person could see a moving image was either at the movies or on television. And in both cases, you had no control over the uh, the film. You could only watch it forward at sound speed. There was no pause. There was no rewind, no fast-forward, nothing like that. So uh, when I saw this movie, Ola, and he could stop on a frame and go backward, I thought, oh, my God, this is fantastic. You know, uh, It really struck me as something that, like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And he had all his equipment, he had splicers and rewinds and reels and tape dispensers and all sorts of things all over his uh, desk, his, his setup, for, you know, his editing bench. And I've always liked working with my hands, and that was part of the attraction for me, too. So I decided that I would, I, on the spot, I quit architecture school and decided to try to get a, bus- uh, a job in the business. And through a friend, I got a job as a delivery boy at a company that made industrial films. They would go shoot stock car races. Today it would be called NASCAR. 
they'd hire 10 cameramen for the day and they'd shoot the race and then they bring all this footage back to the office and the editors would cut together the race with a voiceover, you know, calling the race. And then at the end, they would tack on a, a little uh, ad for STP or, or spark plugs or tires or whatever. And they would take these films. It was the same film, but different tags on the end. And they would sell them to the various companies who would use them as sales conventions to, to rev up their uh, sales base, you know, their sales force. So I was working there, and I met a on one of my rounds. I, my job was to take packages around town and I would take cut work prints to the negative uh, to the negative cutter and then I would pick up cut negative and take it to the lab and I would pick up from the lab I would take prints and bring them back to the office so that was my job sort of facilitating these packages going around town and on one of my uh, rounds I met a negative cutter who was looking to train somebody mm-hmm. And I consulted with one of the editors at the office. I said, what do you think? He said, well, at least you'll be handling film and not packages. (laughs) I thought, well, that kind of makes sense. So I gave notice, and I started to work for this negative cutter, and I learned the whole technical end of the business, how you prepare negatives to go into the lab. And and then after about six months, I really exhausted everything this guy could teach me, and the work got extremely boring. So I left. And then I managed to get a job assisting... Uh, as an assistant editor, even though I didn't, I wasn't technically an assistant editor, but I knew uh-huh. enough to uh-huh. to get by. Uh, I went to work at this trailer house. It had been a radio spot house, and they were expanding into trailers and TV spots. And um, they had one editor who needed an assistant, so I became his assistant. Mm-hmm. And after a while, they were they were getting a lot of business. And after a while, he couldn't handle all the work, and he gave me a ten minute featurette on the making of the Thomas Crown Affair uh, to cut down to three and a half minutes. So that was the first thing I did. And then the client was United Artists, and they liked my work, so they gave me one to do from scratch on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with Dick Van Dyke. How did you get involved with Brian De Palma then, again, starting this, this long partnership with him as a director and editor combo? Well, my brother um, got a job at Universal scouting, directing, and writing talent in New York City. He was always very voluble and talked his way into this job. And he met Brian, and they proposed a project to the studio, which was turned down. So he and Brian decided to produce the film on their own, my brother acting as producer, um, and raised some money from family, friends. And they shot a film called Greetings, which starred, among other people, Bob De Niro. Mm -hmm. So... And Brian had already worked with Bob once once before on a picture called The Wedding Party. They finished Greetings. They needed a trailer for it, so they turned to me, and I cut a trailer for Greetings. And then that's how I met Brian. And he and I hit it off. And then when they got the money to do a second film, I I was hired as the editor. And then I did five pictures for him before I worked for anyone else. And um, that's how I, I got started. Yeah, I mean, that list of you first starting out, you know, Phantom of the Paradise and Carrie and Obsession, like just incredible, incredible movies so early on in your career. What were you learning through this process of of working not only with De Palma, but on these story-driven, incredible films? Well, you know, I never never went to film school and uh, never had any idea of going to film school. And, you know, when I graduated college, it was either law school, medical school, or business school. Right. And only the jocks went to business school. So architecture was sort of an outlier, and it was sort of artistic, which I, it would appeal to me. But 
uh, it was, you know, it turned out to be not what I really wanted. And um, film is so much livelier than than that. So that's what drew me to it. Um, but uh, yeah, as a consequence of the way I got into the business, I never learned. I mean, I learned how to cut trailers from somebody else, but uh, I didn't learn how to cut features uh, except by doing it. And and uh, Brian was is five years older than I am, so I was 23, he was 28. So we were kind of learning at the same time. He was more experienced than I, and and uh, knew more, but not that. You know what I mean? We we so we were still right. growing, both right. of us. But he encouraged me, and he empowered me, and he. Um, he gave me a lot of support and encouragement. I learned by, you know, the way that uh, amateur painters learn how to paint. They go to the Louvre or the Met or whatever, and they sit down and they copy the masters. And so that, what I was doing in my work was, was trying to turn my these dailies that I had into something that looked like a movie. Uh, mm-hmm. That was my goal. So I was sort of a passionate amateur who got a chance to work on professional films. Well, I think you succeeded into making th- making those look like movies. Well, you have to give credit to Brian. I mean, I, I think Brian is sort of underappreciated, but uh, maybe he's not. I, you know, I don't really devote a lot of time to the film fan scene. I don't really, right. I'm not deeply in touch with what critics are writing about who. Mm-hmm. I think that somehow other directors of his generation have gotten a lot more attention. How did you start from working with De Palma and to then going into the editing room with, with Lucas. What was that um, transition, and, and how was it working with a new director like George Lucas? Well, uh, George came back from England after having shot his film. He was very unhappy with the cut, mm-hmm. and he let his editor go when he left England. And uh, Marshall Lucas and Richard Chu were cutting the picture, and they realized that uh, they weren't going to be able to get through it all and they needed extra, you know, extra help. So I had met Marsha and George a couple of years earlier when there was a screening of Phantom of the Paradise at 20th Century Fox in L.A. Mm-hmm. And we chatted a little bit at the at a little reception, and um, it was an immediate, obvious kind of connection. We, you know, just on a personal level, we just sort of clicked. Uh, the following year, Marsha was working on Taxi Driver, and she called me up and she said, can you come out and help? work on Taxi Driver. I said, sure. And the next day she called back and said Columbia wouldn't permit it because they, you know, they weren't going to pay to bring an editor out from New York wow. when they had all these editors in L.A. So I said, okay. You know, so now, a year later, they come back from England and we showed them Carrie. And we just finished the cut of Carrie. Mm-hmm. And uh, they went off to uh, the West Coast and we were in New York. And I got a call from Marsha and said, how would you like to come work on Star Wars when you finish Carrie? And I said, I'd love to. Am I going to get a call tomorrow <laughs> saying the studio said no? She said, she said, no, 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 this is much different. George is in control of the, of the process. And, uh, so I said, yeah, of course, I'd love to. So what was that editing room like? You mentioned Richard Chu. You mentioned Marshall Lucas. And, and you know, historically, George Lucas is very famous for having an editor point of view and, and mind, and he's comfortable in the editing room. What was that process like with that team, editing which reels and which scenes? Well, when I came on, Marsha was focused entirely on the end battle. Mm-hmm. And she was still building it at that point. Um, and it was a tremendously complicated uh, task. 
um, and she worked on it for many, many weeks. And uh, Richard was recutting the reels uh, leading up to the end battle, mm-hmm. and um, which is when I got involved. And he and I would sort of leapfrog over. And when I finished the reel, I would go <laughs> to the next reel, and let, you know. And then if he was working on it, I'd go to the one after that, and then so forth. You know, so mm-hmm. we both were recutting the reels. At a certain point, George had to lock the end battle uh, to deliver it to ILM so they could make the shots in time. And I moved from recutting the reels to helping Marsha with the end battle. We divided it up. She took the first part, uh, which was longer, and I took the last part, which was shorter. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we worked on it together for a number of days until we finally were able to deliver a locked version of the sequence to ILM. And meanwhile, Richard was still recutting the reels. The original Star Wars is a masterclass in, in terms of editing. And, of course, with the shots that were available, right, whether that they weren't finished with um, special effects or that they still needed John Williams' score. How did you frame that in your mind in order to edit the, the product to make it a lock cut? Well, uh, as you pointed out, George is an editor himself. You know, that was his forte in film school. And he once told me that the only reason he directed was to have film to cut. <laughs> and the only wrote, reason he wrote was to have film to direct. Mm-hmm. So the whole point was to have fil- film to cut. That was his focus. But he wasn't able to cut on the film because he was spending half of the week with ILM uh, getting it on its feet and up to speed and uh, so he would spend he he lived up north so he you know Monday morning he would fly down to LA spend three days with ILM and Wednesday night he would fly back and then Thursday Friday and Saturday he would come to the editing room and work with us so his time was really divided you know between the effects and the cutting. Mm-hmm. We worked, the three of us worked together for about three months. I think it was October, November, December. We showed the picture to the studio in December, I believe. And then at that point, Marty Scorsese was cutting New York, New York. Mm-hmm. And his editor, a guy named Irving Lerner, uh, uh, sadly died. And Marty had worked with Marsha before, and he called her up and said, can you come work on New York, New York? And they'd had a successful relationship working on a couple of pictures. So um, at that point, George decided he really wanted to continue with just one editor. And um, I had only been hired to the end of the year, so I didn't expect to be extended. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought Richard was going to stay on, but apparently he had the same deal I had. <laughs> and um, George had to choose one of us, and he chose me. Um Marsha went off to do New York, New York with Marty. Mm-hmm. So then January, February, March, April, and May, I was the editor on the picture. And um, during that time, wow. uh, they reshot jo- uh, uh, R2-D2 with the Jawas in the canyon, and they reshot the cantina sequence. Right. We shot the whole build-up to the uh, the triggering of the... The Death Star Ray, I don't know what you call it, mm-hmm. the, uh, the destructo mechanism. <laughs> um, a lot of that material we needed because it was a key element in developing tension in the, in the final reel, in the final uh, right. and battle. And we had to create the example of it in an earlier reel so that when you saw it at the end, you would recognize what was about to happen. With With Star Wars specifically, and then moving into... To Empire, 
Um, there was, you know, again, the, the special effects work and the story being told was, was so radically different than, you know, movies that had come before it. What were your first impressions, especially, you know, you were one of the first people to ever see completed footage of Star Wars. How are you kind of realizing that through the work that you were doing? I wanted to watch the reels when I started, and George said, no, no, don't do that. We, we Nothing is right. We have to recut it all, and then we'll, you know, so... He would give me a reel to cut, and then uh, if if Richard had finished the reel, I would watch that. Mm-hmm. But he wouldn't let me look at anything that hadn't been recut. So every time I grabbed a new reel to start work on it, I would watch it and think, "Oh my God, this is so good!" <laughs> I mean, there's, there's so much stuff, and you know, uh, there's so much great, so many great scenes in every reel, and it was sort of revealed to me over the course of many weeks because I was only seeing a reel until I finished my work on it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get to see the whole movie until uh, we got it all recut from beginning to end. And then we kept working on it even then. I mean, we, we kept refining and refining and refining all the way to the last minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there was no time to look up and think about the larger implications right. of what we were doing. It was just Busy, 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 nose to the grindstone. Yeah. Um, from morning till night, every day, you know. So. Yeah, that's wild. What was the, do you remember what the final shot that you locked before uh, shipping off the final cut of the movie was? No, I don't. I can tell you a little, I don't know if this is too wonkish for your audience, but um, I can tell you a story that's not in my book. Uh, I would love to hear it. George was shooting the visual effects in VistaVision. VistaVision is a larger format. It has eight perfs instead of four. The idea was when you make dupe negatives from original negative, you lose quality. And the idea of shooting the effects in VistaVision was that when you made the dupe negative, the optical negative, down to four perf, it would intercut better with the original negative that had been in the camera and the, and the rest of the shooting, you know, the, the live action shooting. But it wasn't clear if the quality would match. So in order to give himself flexibility, George decided that he would cut the negative in A and B rolls. Uh, A and B rolls A, A and B rolls was like a checkerboard. Uh, they'd make an A roll and a B roll, and the first shot of the negative would be cut into the A roll. The second shot of the sequence would be cut into the B roll, and opposite the B roll and the A roll would be black leader. So every shot was connected to black leader on either side. There was no shot spliced to another piece of film. It was just to another, you know, another cut of the action. Mm-hmm. So every piece of action was spliced to black leader on both sides. And the reason he did that was that if there was a shot that looked too good because of the higher quality of, of VistaVision, right. he could take it out of the reel, uh, out of the A roll or B roll, whatever roll it happened to be in, take it out of the roll, make another dupe, degrading the quality further mm-hmm. so that it would match the original negative. Okay, so the reason that we didn't just cut the negative ordinarily, which is the single strand of one shot after the other, was uh, to avoid making what they call splice over splices. Negative cutters can open up splices and splice over them, mm-hmm. but it's not desirable because the splice is not necessarily as solid 
the purpose of this exercise, the A and B rolls, was to avoid making any splice over splices. If we had to take a shot out of the roll, dupe it and replace it with the lower quality dupe. So our negative cutter in assembling these A and B rolls made two mistakes. One mistake was he used the wrong kind of black leader. There are two kinds of black leader. There's positive and there's negative black leader. They're both black, but the perforations on positive black leader are kind of rectangular, and the ones on negative black leader are more oval, and they fit more snugly against the sprockets for for tighter and more secure control because it's negative and you don't want it to rattle around. Well, he used the wrong kind, so in order to... <laughs> In order to avoid making any splice over splices, uh-huh. it turned out that what, because of his mistake, we had to make a splice over splice on every single shot in the reel. <laughs> uh-huh. His second mistake was there are two kinds of splicers uh, for 35 millimeter film. Uh, one was for ordinary 35, and the other was for you know cinemascope or. or uh, widescreen where the the overlap of one film uh, one piece of film to the other is narrower than on ordinary 35 mm-hmm. so that the splice when it comes up when it's projected is invisible because it's narrow well he used the other kind of splicer that where the splice is broader so after he had done his re-splicing with the correct negative and they projected it you could see every splice as it went through then they had to print uh, real one with a mat that would mask these beds, you know, the, the, the splices that were visible because he had used the wrong kind of splicer. So if you were to measure it, I suppose, the vertical height of each frame in real one would be less than all the other reels in the movie, but not noticeably, obviously. <laughs> right. <laughs> After 40 years, yeah, no one picked up on it. I guess then moving... To Empire, right? So you and Marsha and Richard Chu win an Academy Award for your incredible work on Star Wars, and then you move on to, to editing Empire. What lessons did you learn, whether it's editing the special effects or working directly with George and Marsha, of course, uncredited? What did you then take to the Empire editing bay? Well, let's see. I don't know. I had done two pictures in the interim, so I was still, you know, developing my chops, uh, working with a new director Kirshner mm-hmm. and um, it was um, it was a different experience because first of all I was involved from the get-go I was there from day one and um, um, and the the design of Empire was very bold uh, after Star Wars uh, any studio executive would have had us do a a clone of the first film with, you know, a big right. battle at the end. Uh, and George decided he wasn't going to do that. And the big battle scene in Empires at the beginning. So that was that was really uh, daring. And uh, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I don't think he gets enough credit for, <laughs> for what he's done, to tell you the truth. For some reason, uh, people like to beat up on him, but I think it's terrible. But it was it was a bold move, and... and um, Kirshner was an experienced director who uh, dug down with the actors 
to make the characters come alive uh, much more than much more than George had in the original right. film because right. that's not really George's forte, right. you know. Yeah. But um, but Kirshner got some wonderful character stuff out of the out of the Wookiee and his relationship with Han and and uh, of course with uh, Leia and uh, Marsha came in and cut a scene uh, between Harrison and Leia which George felt needed a woman's touch. Mm-hmm. But um, Kirsch was uh, Kirsch was a stickler for things, and uh, he, he uh, for various reasons, the, the picture went over schedule. Mm-hmm. And every couple of weeks we'd say, you know, instead of going back on this date, we're going to go back two weeks later. And then it kept getting extended. It was like a moving horizon, you know. And uh, finally, we wound up at the end. We, the picture wound up shooting 13 weeks over schedule. No, that's not true. It's uh, no, that is true. We, we, spoke, we were scheduled for 16 weeks, and they shot 29. Wow! Wow! So we lost 13 weeks out of our post schedule. Right. And uh, yet we made it up anyway because um, we locked the picture one month after the end of shooting. So that was pretty quick. Um, it was due to, you know, a, re- a script that really worked well, and I don't know. Everybody was sort of on board with the cut, pretty much as it was, and it just, you know, sometimes pictures just work. Definitely, I, I know there are, there are some set photos of you actually on, especially the Echo Base set, and you mentioned that you were involved from day one. Was part of that being able to at least witness it firsthand, as opposed to coming in late, like you did for Star Wars? Well, I didn't go on location to uh, Norway, or I, I forget where they shot Norway, I think it was. Right. Uh, I was not on location in Norway that first week. It was all second unit stuff anyway. But um, I was, you know, around the, the set, and it took so long to set up these uh, shots. Every shot had steam, or, or there would be uh, hits on the wall. They'd have to, you know, to do a second take, they'd have to... Mm-hmm plaster and paint over the damage and then plant new uh, explosives, you know, and I was only getting a very limited amount of film every day because everything was so complicated. Right. So very often I'd finish my work by midday and I'd wander over to the set <laughs> and they'd say, what are you doing here? And I'd say, well, I'm out of film. I, you know, I, I need more film. <laughs> and I'd, you know, I'd hang around the set. So uh, it was, you know, it was interesting. Uh, uh, editors editors tend to be kind of isolated and uh, right. right usually i think it's an uh, an advantage not to know what's going on on the set because the proper uh perspective that you have should be you should only be able to see what the audience is going to see and you should only know what the audience is going to know so if you hear that somebody had a, a tantrum or terrible or the, the lunch was terrible or whatever mm-hmm. uh it shouldn't affect it doesn't affect what what the audience is going to see, you know. So um, it's really good to have distance from what's going on in the production uh, to be rigorous about it from an editorial standpoint. Mm-hmm. But on a personal standpoint, it's interesting to be around when they're shooting the movie, you know. I, I would love to just briefly move to another collaboration that you you had a, a strong tie to director-wise, which was John Hughes and uh, yeah. two of my favorite comedies. You know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and, and Planes, Trays, and Automobiles, you had a, such a pivotal role because 
um, and you can explain probably better than I can, um, the, the role of editing and comedy is, is so much more important sometimes even than a drama or you know a science fiction film. But what was that process like, uh, first working with John Hughes and then, um, and then kind of cultivating this incredible relationship? Well, John uh, had worked with Dee Dee Allen and, uh, on Breakfast Club, and he decided that he only wanted to work with editors from New York. Mm-hmm. That's why I got the call, because I, I was from New York. And uh, I learned from working with John that he had a very particular uh, modus operandi, and that was that he would write these brilliant first drafts almost in a trance. He would He would have moments when he was... Uh, possessed, and he would—he was not to be disturbed. He would lock the door, and he was—he would just write, and it was like he was taking dictation from his muse, you know. Mm-hmm. And he would f- write these fantastic first drafts, but he would never edit them, and he wouldn't let any—he wouldn't rewrite, and he wouldn't let anyone else rewrite either. Uh-huh. So the studio would have to say okay, and then so the first, you know, so Ferris turned out to be. The first cut turned out to be two hours and 45 minutes long. And it was the longest first cut I had ever done in my life. Yeah. Uh, usually when I work with Brian, it was always, he was always worried about the picture being too short. You know, <laughs> do, do we have enough yet? Can I stop shooting? Uh-huh. Um, uh, but with John, it was the opposite. So that was interesting, working with him to to get Ferris down to size and uh what was wonderful about ferris is it all took place in one day so there were no costume changes that we had to worry about Mm -hmm. everybody was wearing the same clothes and you can move things around um and eventually we did the the parade sequence which ends the day before they go back home had, had come earlier and uh we moved it later and moved the traffic jam up earlier than it had been and uh we, we did a number of things but essentially there were a lot of uh speeches to camera and too many of them and we cut a lot of them out so that's how we got down to to fighting weight you know mm-hmm. with planes trains and automobiles the first cut was three hours and 45 minutes oh wow and oh, wow. and uh they shot for 85 days and each day that they shot they were delivering two or three hours of dailies to the cutting room. Mm-hmm. So we'd come out of dailies, and I'd turn to the crew, and I'd say, we just watched more film for this one scene, and the whole picture can run. <laughs> so we finished the picture and at the end of June, mm-hmm. and we were booked into, I don't know, 4,000 theaters in early November. Mm-hmm. So working backwards from that, you had to be mixing in October, which means you had to lock the picture in September. So now it was July 4th weekend. John goes away for two weeks. And the studio flipped out, but he was going to take a vacation. Mm-hmm. So he comes back after the vacation, and we start work on the film. And he had obviously been giving it some thought, and he said, all right, we're going to get rid of this, this, this. You know, mm-hmm. We go through the picture, and we're pulling stuff out, take this out. Take the, there are all these subplots about Steve Martin's wife suspects him of having an affair, and, mm-hmm. and we just take all that stuff out. And in one pass... We go from three hours and 45 minutes down to two and a half hours. Wow. We took out a third of the picture in one pass. <laughs> uh-huh. And I said to John, I said, John, do you realize we just cut out 28 days of shooting? <laughs> uh-huh. And he just shrugged. You know? 
he didn't care. So, um, so then, and then we got it down to about two hours and we started to preview it and we found that we had, um, lots more work to do. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's, I could go on for a long time about this, but it's in my book. Yes. Eventually you'll read it. Eventually. Um, but it's a good story. And, uh, he was a brilliant man and died way too soon. It's really a shame. Yeah, a, a huge shame. Um, well, uh, like you were mentioning, um, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and talking through these incredible stories. And, and you've written these stories down. The book is called A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away. Put a, a link in the show notes so you can pre-order it right now. It's on Amazon. And hopefully before November, we can talk even more um, to go into detail about a lot of these movies that we didn't even touch, um, incredible films that you worked on with, with De Palma, and, and I'm sure I can try to get a couple more Star Wars stories out of you um, when the time comes as well. Okay. Okay, well, Mr. Hirsch, uh, thank you so, so much. This was such an honor and such a treat, and it means a lot. You're welcome. Uh, we'll talk very soon. All right, take care. Okay, bye-bye. I am so, so grateful to Mr. Hirsch for taking the time to tell these incredible stories from the editing bay. They were utterly fascinating, especially for the films that literally redefined how modern movies are edited. Even more stories can be found in his upcoming memoir, A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away, which is coming out in November. I've put the link in the show notes to pre-order it on Amazon, and you better believe that I already have my copy ordered. I hope we can have him on again soon to talk even more about his work on some of these iconic films. But until next week, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and as always, may the Force be with you.